You've been hearing ads for Zencaster these past months. Interested in sponsoring this show or podcast ads for your business? Go to zen.ai forward slash the archaeology show and fill out the contact information so Zencaster can help you bring your business story to life. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to Heritage Voices, episode 62. I'm Jessica Uquinto, and I'm your host. And today we are talking about going from researched to researcher, one indigenous archaeologist's journey through academia. Before we begin, I'd like to honor and acknowledge that the lands I'm recording on today are part of the Nuch, or Ute People's Treaty Lands, the Dineta, and the Ancestral Pueblo and Homeland. Today, we have Dr. Ora Merrick Martinez on the show. Dr. Ora Merrick Martinez is a citizen of the Diné Nation and is born for the Nez Perce people. A director at the Native American Cultural Center, her work includes supporting and ensuring the success of Northern Arizona University, Native American, and Indigenous students through indigenized programming and services. An assistant professor in the NAU Anthropology Department, woot woot, her research interests include indigenous archaeology and heritage management, research and approaches that utilize ancestral knowledge, decolonizing and indigenizing methodologies, and storytelling in the creation of archaeological knowledge to reaffirm indigenous connections to land and place. Dr. Merrick Martinez is a founding member of the Indigenous Archaeology Collective. So welcome to the show, Dr. Merrick Martinez. Thank you, Jessica. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah, well, we are so excited to have you because, as I was telling you before, you were on our list literally from day one of this podcast. So it only took us, you know, I think six years has it been, but it's happening. So <laughs> very excited about exactly. This. We're running on Indian time. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we're running on Indian time. <laughs> I love it. It I happened it. when it needed to. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. When the timing was right. <laughs> Yes. Yep. So I want to start out this podcast, like all other podcasts, and ask you how you got into this field. Yeah, well, great. Actually, if you wouldn't mind, I I would just also like to take a little bit of time to recognize the traditional and Aboriginal land users and owners of the area that I am on, that I live upon and enjoy, and that is in the Flagstaff area. I'd like to recognize the connections that many different Indigenous tribal nations maintain with the mountain, the San Francisco peaks, and honor their ancestors, their present, and their future generations. And so just like to take that time to, to recognize their, their connections and, and how they honor this place and, and the mountains. But also I'd like to introduce myself in my Diné language, and especially because This is a way for me to establish relationality with you all. The topics that I'm going to be discussing today and and that I have in mind are all very personal to me. And so just to preface some of that and, and the healing that I've been through, I really want to take the time to introduce who I really am and how I'm known to to my own communities. 
And so yet eish a or America Martinez inishe. Zetlatni inishle. Do nimi pui petese bashishchim. Ado kis ani e dashiche. Do belagane e dashinale. A got ego e sun inishle. Lapwe Idaho ding yisin nasha. Do kinsanete nashago. And so, for those of you who do not speak Navajo language, I introduced who I am. I am a citizen of the Navajo Nation, but more specifically, I am a member of the Mountain Cove Clan. My father was Nespers from northern Idaho. My maternal grandfather was Hopi from Oribe. And my paternal grandfather was Bohemian and Italian, which is where my last name Merrick comes from. Because of that, I am a Navajo woman. And I originally grew up in Lapway, Idaho on a Nez Perce reservation, but I live here in Flagstaff now with my family. And so, you know, in, in thinking about who I am and where I come from, that is exactly how I decided to get into archaeology. And, and so that wasn't a conscious decision. I, However, I did realize that I wanted to help protect our cultural landscape and our ancestral sites when I was about 10 years old. And that was because my father actually was a cultural liaison for the Nez Perce tribe. And he was one of the people who had to respond to any kind of issues related to archaeology, anthropology, or our culture. And so I would travel with my dad and a lot of these different sort of issues and we'd go to pick up items and and we'd go to the mountains and we'd go to different cultural people and he would talk to them about who we were as as Nez Perce people. But also he learned about the protocols as they were related to our ancestors and how they should be taken care of. And so my father was very intentionally, I think, training my siblings and I to be able to engage in work like that for our people. And so within my community, though, I was raised with the community in mind. And so it was a very community-centered, family-centered place that I grew up in, Lapway, Idaho. And we were taught from a very young age that if any of us were to succeed it would be because of all of us. And so anything that we did was with our people in mind. It was with our future in mind. And so, you know, in in going through all of the lessons that I was taught and what my elders taught me, what my aunties and my grandmas taught me, my uncles, was really that our who we are is in service of our people and of our larger community. So our our animal relatives, our plant relatives, our stone relatives, right? All of these other people and things that we maintain relationships with, those are important in in thinking about when we do the work that we do or when we engage in, in any kind of work. It was actually a specific example or a specific situation that I realized I I really wanted to do something to prepare myself to be able to protect our culture, our history, and our heritage. And I was about 10 years old one summer when my father took us to a petroglyph panel that was related to our band in particular. And so my dad had gone to this place since he was a child and learned from his mom and his aunts and his uncles about what this place meant to the Nimipu or the Nespers people. And so they would tell him stories about, 
you know, from these panels of petroglyphs and they would talk about these histories. And so my father was very adamant that we would learn those same histories. And every summer we would go to this panel and then go swimming. And that one summer, my father went first and, and he would lead us to this spot where the petroglyphs were. And it was a little bit precarious to get there, sort of had to shimmy on this cliff, but it was fun. And it was amazing to hear my dad tell the stories of our people. And so when we got to this space, my dad stopped and we all kind of bumped into him. And so, you know, it was strange. And so I, you know, asked my dad what was wrong and and he turned and looked at me and he was crying. And that was one of the first time I'd ever seen my dad cry. And he sort of moved out of the way, moved across and all of us, my cousins, my sisters, and I went into that space. And the petroglyph panels had been, one panel in particular had been chipped out. You could see the chainsaw marks where it had been destroyed, pickaxe marks where it had been picked out. And I remember just being completely confused and asking my father, what happened, dad? Who would do this? What, what's going on? You know, I was completely just dumbfounded and confused. And I remember very specifically, my dad responded to me and said that it was either in somebody's backyard or in a museum. And that struck me to my core. And I remember feeling upset and angry and and very determined at that point to make sure that that would never happen again. And so I didn't realize at the time that that would lead me to a career in archaeology, but it was very much the, the beginning of my desire and my intention to, to move into a career that would help my people, but that would protect the places that were most important to us and, and to our ancestors. And so really that's how I, I realized that I wanted to be an archaeologist. Well, I don't, <laughs> I don't know quite how to like follow up a story like that. That's horrible. <laughs> I'm sorry that that happened to you. You know, I think it's really interesting. Obviously, it's very special that you got to have all of those experiences with your dad. And it it ties into something that we were talking about before we came on air, which was it's interesting, an interesting juxtaposition, it seems like, on the one side with your your Nez Perce side, you know, and really engaging with the archaeology and, and, and including you and that and, and, uh, supporting those, those efforts. And then, you know, there's definitely a different sense about archeology span on your Diné side. And, you know, that's something that mm-hmm. uh, we've heard a lot from different guests on this podcast about how that's something that they kind of struggle with as archeologists. Um, so could you talk a little bit about, you know, what that experience has been like, you know, uh, why, or I guess how, um, what it was like balancing those two experiences to archaeology. Right. Yeah. You know, (laughs) it's always a a very interesting sort of life experience to be intertribal, right? I come from the Diné people, the Navajo people. My father is Nez Perce and my mom though, she's half Navajo and half Hopi. And so, you know, in, in coming from all of those backgrounds, 
I didn't realize really how, how different they were in, in um, some of these areas until I actually moved down here to Arizona and learned about what it meant to be a, a Navajo woman and, and learning about also what it meant to engage with our past, our deep past and our history. And, you know, one of the things that was very difficult for me to sort of navigate and, and reconcile in my own mind. And it hasn't been until recently that I, I've come to a place where I feel comfortable with my decision. But in, in thinking about, you know, the, the cultural education on the Navajo side and, you know, we're taught very directly that our ancestral places, these archaeological sites or the Nehithnesazis sites, our ancestral sites, again, in Navajo, we're, we're told that they have this power and that we are to respect that power and to stay away from them because they are a part of a natural cycle of sort of being sort of born and created and then living a life cycle and then going back into the earth, right? They're a part of that natural process. And it isn't a part of who we are as Navajo people to disturb those processes. You know, it's it's something that is intended to happen in a very natural way. And so, you know, in, in the work that we have done for, or that I have done for Navajo, it has really been within the context of infrastructure development. And, and the way that I've seen it more recently is in support of the sovereignty of the Navajo nation. And, and we, we think about it within these different contexts. So we have this sort of cultural layer that provides this understanding for us and, and this protocol of the ways that we should engage with our landscape and, and all of these different sort of features or these different aspects of the land, because our culture and our identity come from the land. And so in, in understanding that and knowing that, right, these places on the landscape, including these Nehetnesazi sites or these archaeological sites, they tell us these things about who we are. And, and it's in that process of observing these protocols and respecting those relationships that we learn about who we really are as Diné people. And so that was something that, you know, it took me a really long time to understand. And I think part of that as well is because I very much was raised within a Nimipu home, a Nespers home. And it wasn't until I was, a, you know, ready to graduate high school that I was introduced to my Navajo side. And so learning all of these things and, and being on the landscape and, you know, interviewing elders and learning from our Hatathis and our other medicine people, it was eye-opening to learn about how much power is involved with learning about the past. And I, I think that is sort of the this kind of misunderstanding in some ways about how Navajo people view the past or how they engage with the past. And, you know, a lot of times we don't have that cultural knowledge to understand why there are these prohibitions about you know, digging in these ancestral places or even digging in the earth, right? Those, there's so much there as far as our ceremony and protocol that we have to observe and, and know about though. And so it took me again, that 
a, a very long time and I am not an expert at all when it comes to Navajo culture. And I am a continual learner, but from what I was taught at my time at the Navajo Nation as an archaeologist and a tribal historic preservation officer was really about understanding our relationship and how we really do come from the landscape. And so in, when I look at it from that perspective, what I was taught as a Nez Perce woman really comes in line with that as well although our protocols are different in how we engage. And so from my Nesper side, it was, it, it was really about engaging and, and learning and being in the place and, and drawing this power and energy from these places, these archaeological sites or these historical sites where our ancestors lived. And then, you know, moving into this space in the Southwest where it, it really is a sort of westernized kind of misconstruction of Navajo culture. And so, you know, I had to sort of erase all of that information and knowledge and then learn from our elders and our our Hatathlis, right, our our medicine people about what that actually meant. And so when I I started to engage at that level, my understanding of archaeology also changed and, and, and what was valuable and how we could assist our communities and so when I when I began to shift my own perspective and think about it as is as, as that, right? How do we help our people to realize and to re-engage with these connections and, and this relationship that they have with the past, right? But being mindful as well of this sort of destructive capacity of archaeology. And so really for me it's been about finding this sort of middle ground where you know, we, we utilize the tools of archaeology to learn about our past, but that is not the only way to learn about our past. And so utilizing our cultural information, our ceremonial information, our protocols, right, and how we engage with the land, that is a space right there that is really sort of this, it represents indigenous or indigenized archaeology because we're engaging in these other ways of knowing and being and doing with the past and with the cultural landscape. And so, you know, it, it, it definitely has taken me a long time. You know, I've been working as an archaeologist for over 20 years and in the Southwest, and it's literally taken me all of that time to, to come to an, a level of understanding of what that actually means and what that represents, you know, and, and I'm starting to, to approach that sort of threshold, you know, of an elder. And, and it really is a lifelong process in, in thinking about what it means to understand the past. And so, yeah, I think that's probably the best way for me to, to describe that process of probably reconciliation and relationship, but also responsibility to to my own people, to my communities, and as a indigenous person to the landscape. So <laughs> Yeah. So we're already at our first break point, but I definitely want to dive deeper into what you were just saying there when we get back from the break. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks. Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block because there are drinks 
Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Chris Webster here from the APN. You've heard me talk about Zencaster for a few months now, and there's never been a better time to check this out and start a podcast. Zencaster has hosting tools and both audio and video podcasting capability. Many of you have already clicked on the link in the show notes, and we thank you for that. Use the code HEVO, that's H-E-V-O, at the link in the show notes, or go to Zencaster.com and use the code. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R.com to get 30% off your first three months. Again, use the code HEVO, H-E-V-O, for 30% off your first three months at Zencaster.com. All right. So we're back, and I want to dive right back in to what we were just talking about. So we were talking about basically how archaeology could be better. And so if you could just maybe give some, like a couple of specific examples of, of things that from your perspective would make archaeology better? Yeah, great. You know, I think that is such a great question. And, and you know, we are definitely at a crossroads in archaeology. And in thinking about how can we do archaeology better, you know, when it, there are actually two things that, that come to my mind right away. And the first thing in thinking about how do we do archaeology better, right, within this time and, and this space that we are all in right now, we have all of these different social justice movements that are happening. We have all of these different communities that are, you know, standing up for themselves and that are, are really pushing for their space in, in, in these spaces that we have been previously excluded from and, and archaeology being one of those places. And so for me, and, and based on the work that I've done over the past 20 years, one of the things that I've implemented in my own work is centering Indigenous life worlds and knowledges in archaeology. And by that, really, what I mean, and, and really this, I think, speaks to indigenization of archaeology but when we begin to center indigenous life worlds and, and life worlds is a concept that I picked up from a, an Aboriginal Australian archaeologist and scholar who was speaking about how do we best capture who we are and, and how we understand the world within this academic context. And so this is borrowing from a sociological term but life worlds is really about the epistemologies, the ontologies, the axiologies, and the pedagogies of a, a particular group. And so I really appreciate that concept. And, and for me, it really is about centering those life worlds, but also the knowledges that are a result of these life worlds. 
Because one of the things that we have to recognize is that indigeneity is so complex and diverse that indigenous archaeology, as we sort of understand it, cannot be applied wholesale to all indigenous groups. And so indigenous archaeology recognizes that diversity and these nuances, and it also creates space for these ways of doing and ways of knowing And so when we begin to center Indigenous life worlds and knowledges, we begin to see the past in a way that provides a sort of indigenized perspective, right? And it it incorporates these ideas and, and these concepts about the landscape, about our own identities, but also these places or these concepts that we tend to stay away from in archaeology because they relate to these lived experiences. And, you know, one of the things that I've heard consistently from archaeologists is that they are archaeologists because they do not want to bother with quote unquote live populations. And so, sorry to break it to you, but we as Indigenous peoples recognize our ancestors and the continuity from our ancestors to present time. And so, you know, in in recognizing that and utilizing and centering this life world knowledge, it helps to create a space that presents an indigenized version of anthropology or archaeology or the history of our people. And so that, for me, is, is one of those ways. And that is something that cannot be done without Indigenous peoples. And so I guess the first rule would be, you know, something, again, that I've heard from our international Indigenous relatives is nothing about us without us. And so, and maybe that's the cardinal rule, I guess, is in thinking about how can we do archaeology better, is nothing about us without us. So, you know, and then following that would be centering Indigenous life worlds and knowledges. And as part of those two sort of larger processes, for me, that that next piece then is understanding that there are these different but valid kinds of knowledge. And that if we're to create or recreate these stories of our deep past and of our shared human experience, then we really need to engage in in what Sonia Atale has called braiding knowledges, right? And so braiding these indigenous life world knowledges along with the sort of Western archaeological theories and methodologies. And then also, I think that sort of third strand would be these lived experiences of our contemporary indigenous communities And so braiding those different strands of knowledges and information in order to create an enriched version of our shared human antiquity, right? And so those are are probably the three ways that we can do archaeology better. Yeah, and I think an important aspect of encouraging, I guess, uh, these movements within archaeology, anthropology at large, is hopefully to get more Indigenous students within the field. And I know that's something that's really been a major part of your work 
and your current work, especially. So could you, you know, we've had a lot of indigenous archaeologists or other, you know, indigenous cultural anthropologists, uh, other subfields as well on this podcast. And they've talked some about how, what it's been like being a student within the field. Could you talk a little bit about ways, you know, on the faculty side that you've seen that have been effective for making universities feel more welcoming and inclusive and less dangerous for indigenous students. What, what has your experience been like being on the faculty supporting indigenous students? You know, that's a, a really great question because part of my, my journey, you know, one of the things that I, I firmly believe in and that something that was, you know, is, is really based in, in Nesper's philosophies is that everything happens for a reason, right? And if things don't work out, then it wasn't meant to be at that time. And if it is meant to be, it will happen when it's ready to happen. And so, you know, in, in thinking about my journey here back to NAU, because like I said, I worked for the Navajo Nation for about 16 actually 16 years before I, I transitioned over here to Northern Arizona University. And, you know, it was very, it was very interesting how that process happened. And, and in my own mind, it was something that was meant to be because it just very quickly happened. And so I'm very grateful, though, to be here. I am an alumna of Northern Arizona University. I went through to get my bachelor's and I received my bachelor's in cultural anthropology and history with a minor in Native American studies. And then I went through the master's program again as a cultural anthropologist. Yes. Um, and so. <laughs> and are you cultural anthropology? <laughs> yes. How diverse we are. <laughs> and so, you know, <laughs> just have to laugh about that. So. I love it. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but through my experience, you know, is it's it's very typical for Native American students in general. But you know, and I think that's something that needs to be said is that in in general in the United States, Native American students, we have a bachelor. We we obtain our bachelors at a I think our percentage is about maybe 30%. And then if we look at the master's, right, the number of Native Americans receiving master's degrees, it drops down to about 10%, right? Maybe even less from 5 to 10%. And then thinking about uh, when you say a doctoral 10%. level, RCHD, that um, I would say 10% of all master degrees awarded are to Native Americans. Okay. And actually that sounds a little bit high. So it might even be like 5%. And, and this is nationwide. This is for the United States. And looking at the, the amount of doctoral degrees that are awarded, we are more at one, a half of a percentage point. And so 0. 0.5 per, or 0.005%, I guess, of, of those doctoral degrees are awarded to Native American students. And so, you know, in, in looking at that abysmal history, right, and then taking into consideration that education in, in the United States was really the driving force of educating Native American children was to, 
quote unquote, kill the Indian and save the man. Right. And that was very conscious, consciously a deciding factor of what would be taught to Native Americans and how that would be taught and and how education would impact Indigenous families. And it really was meant to strip us of our indigeneity and of who we were. And so in, in thinking about that, right, it higher education, secondary, post-secondary education is extremely isolating. And I felt that when I went through NAU, there were very few, very few Native Americans in anthropology. And in fact, I, I knew all of the other Native American students in anthropology and You know, we are actually still friends and associate with one another to this very day. And so it is very difficult for us to go through anthropology and archaeology and and listening to faculty telling us, right, that our our histories, our stories that come from us are myth and and superstition. And, And so our experience, our cultures, our histories are denigrated. And so that's how we go through our education. And and for me, being in that isolated space, having no role models, having very few mentors who understood what it meant to be a brown woman in a very white male space was very limiting. And so for me, in, in taking this role as the director at the cultural center, but also as an assistant professor in anthropology, it meant being that person that was not there for me. And so I had to base it on my own experiences of, okay, Aura, what did you need when you were going through university that you did not have that, but would have helped you succeed? And so I had to, you know, myself be very reflexive in, you know, who I wanted to be and and what kind of auntie I wanted to be to the youth that are coming to this institution. And and part of that is, you know, this this sacred responsibility that I have as a mother, as a member of, you know, my different tribal nations is that it's my responsibility to teach the next generation. And, And so that's something that has been instilled in me since I was a very young child. And so in thinking about all of these things, that has been part of my experiences is providing that role or those, you know, opportunities that I wished I had when I went through the system. And so what that looks like for me is creating a space within my institution and in particular within anthropology to ask questions I'm a real, live, living Native American. What is it that you want to ask of me? What do you want to know that you've never had the opportunity to ask? And that in and of itself, in opening up myself and and my history, my lived experience for others to learn from, it has just been amazing to hear from my students about what they've learned and also how to engage with Indigenous peoples. Because unfortunately, in our educational system in the United States, Indigenous peoples are the ever-disappearing Native person, right? We're continually at loss of our language, of our culture, of our histories. And so in the eyes of the average American, we are extinct or we are no longer here. And so you know, having mascots that quote unquote celebrate us or, or having these, 
you know, headdresses or these things that they think are honorific are okay. And so it takes a lot for me to be able to educate a lot of my students about what it means to be a contemporary Native American. But it it is also really helpful for students. And, you know, one of the other things that I am consistently having to do in all of my courses is to begin with a primer on Native American history. And in addition to that, our unique political status, right? We are a nation within a nation. And there are so many people who do not understand that. And and so we have rights that were negotiated for us giving up our land, for us giving up our rights in different places. And so that is something that I I have to teach. And, And so you know, it really is providing a history lesson within history to really go over these issues in order to create a con- the context needed to understand and to engage with Native people or with Indigenous people in archaeology. And so, you know, it's, it's critical for faculty to learn about local histories, to learn about these issues, especially if they are in an institution where they are serving Native or Indigenous communities, where the land is unceded Indigenous territories, right, which is the situation here in Flagstaff, these Indigenous peoples never gave up this land here, ever. It was taken from us. And so telling that history and and making students aware of, you know, this localized history, but also the importance of investigating the histories where you live and where you come from and where you work, because all of those are important in understanding the relationships that are necessary with the communities that you want to work with. And so I know it's a lot of work, but, you know, that's that's your responsibility as faculty, as a mentor, as a teacher is is to really provide that context and the history, because it's it's something that has been forgotten or ignored in this particular place in the United States. And so for me, that's really what it's been about. And then also being very intentional in creating community, creating a space for us to come together, creating a space for us to share food and to share meals, but also, you know, to be here when students need something, when they need support and and that could be cultural support, that could be financial support, academic support, social support, but always being present and available for students is is a way to extend relationality. And, And for me as an Indigenous person, you know, I'm taught about respect and resiliency and reciprocity in the relationships that I hold. And so I uphold those values in the relationships that I have with my students. And really, that's a way, again, to model some of these protocols, but it's also a way to ensure that, you know, I'm upholding my own responsibilities as well. And so just, you know, a few ways that I've sort of indigenized my own responsibilities in space at this institution. All right. Well, with that, we are already at our second break point. It just really flies, doesn't it? So we will be back in a moment. 
Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Back from the break. And, okay, so I'm going to totally change the subject here a little bit, although I would love to hear more about the Native American Cultural Center at NAU, but we just don't have enough time with you. So (laughs) we're going to switch. I really want to hear about season four of the Sapiens podcast, which you've been working on with Yoli Nagandali. And yeah, so, so tell me, first of all, just tell me about your season. You know, this season is actually really great. And it, it is actually a follow-up to the webinar series that we came together um, as this archaeology collective. And so we have the Society of Black Archaeologists, the Indigenous Archaeology Collective. We also have Cornell University as a part of the, the group. And then, of course, Sapiens and Vennergren Foundation. And so all of us came together, different individuals and representatives of these groups to really, you know, sort of check in with one another. And this was actually around the time that we were seeing a lot of the issues surrounding George Floyd. And so, you know, we witnessed this really amazing webinar about monuments. And so that is really what sort of was a catalyzing moment for us all was to come together and and really check in with one another and also to see if there were ways that we could support one another during this time. There were so many things that were happening. We had, you know, the no dapple situation, uh, Mauna Kea that was happening, still happening, you know, and, and all of these issues are just sort of coming to the head. And it was a way for us to create a collective in support of the, the futures in, in archaeology, the future just for our society that we have as, as Black and Indigenous scholars. And so the webinar series was highly successful, and we received a lot of requests from different groups about additional information um, and asking us what we had planned to do next. And honestly, we, we had some conversations about that. And so we decided that one of the of other sort of alternative ways to, to reach a wider audience was to work with a podcast. And so we started to put our heads together and thinking about what could we do to really build on the foundational work of the webinar series and, and bringing all of these really great voices together and this amazing research that was in support of Black and Indigenous communities and of being able to really change the stories that archaeology tells. And and for us, this was really our attempt to center the knowledge and the stories about the past 
in, in an effort to really build a collective future for ourselves and something that we would be able to take ownership, which is something that we haven't been able to do for a really long time as Black and, and Indigenous peoples. And so this podcast was really a way for us to dig a little bit deeper into the work of Black and Indigenous archaeologists. And I would also add not just archaeologists, but cultural heritage practitioners, cultural resource managers, however you (laughs) want to capture the work that they do. But the work that they do (laughs) is with, by, and for their communities. And so that's important to recognize as well as that that knowledge and, and skill doesn't always lie with archaeologists. And so we recognize that in, in the number and the variety of guests that we invited to be a part of this conversation. And so you'll see some really great work being done and, and hearing, you know, a little bit about both Yoli and I and how we were influenced and, and sort of guided by archaeology and and by our own communities and our own cultural practices and upbringings and, and why we have really, you know, engaged in the work that we do to reimagine and reclaim our stories for our communities. And so we also have additional stories that, you know, we're, we're unearthing African history in different places and, and searching for sunken slave ships. We're also, you know, listening to how our archaeologists and our practitioners are supporting the healing of Indigenous communities by searching for unmarked graves in Canada at the Indian residential schools. And so, and in addition to historic cemeteries that are threatened by development, one of the other topics that we really delve into is curating as caretaking and learning how decolonizing museums has shifted this perspective of Indigenous peoples and the way that we engage in archaeology and in a way that makes it come alive for different groups. And it, you know, it's a way of making our past matter. And so those stories are really great. We also learn about protecting sacred places from Indigenous peoples and in the Inde from the White Mountain Apache tribe and the other Western Apache groups who are working to protect their, their, their sacred places We also learn a little bit more about slavery, sustenance, and resistance. And so we have some really great guests who speak about their work in in uncovering slave cuisine and and how that has shaped their perceptions and the work that they do. And then we also learn a little bit more in our final episode about repatriation and and learning and and taking a deep dive into the, the legacy of NAGPRA, but also what does it mean for our African-American and African ancestors, right? And, and what does repatriation look like for our Black communities? And so these are, are really some cutting edge topics that haven't, there, there hasn't been a space created for them within our quote unquote traditional archaeological discussions. And so, you know, to, to create this space to, make room for these marginalized communities to to really tell and and to speak their truth and their stories in a way that helps to heal and transform and and to support these Black and Indigenous communities. And so this podcast season is just an amazing way to 
recognize and acknowledge all of the amazing work that has been done and the work that is being done and the work that will be done collectively. And so, you know, coming from my own perspective and my own positionality, that is a part of the learning that I was taught as well. And the planning is to think about where you are now, but don't forget where you came from, but also to be mindful of the future and and to create these spaces for our people, for our communities. And so really that's what this podcast represents is, is us making that space and, and creating that space that has been previously denied or even taken from us. And so really this is our act of reclamation and, and centering our knowledges, centering our life worlds and, and really starting that process of, again, healing and transformation and, and success for our own communities. And you know what else I really like about the podcast too is that I mean, first of all, what I like about podcasts in general, like what you and I talked about yesterday, which is just, they're so human. Like you can really, you can read the same thing in a book and not hear like the emotion in somebody's voice. And really like, it just hits home in a different way. Like we were talking about the episode where you're talking about black cemeteries and she's talking about human beings being used as like road filler. And I mean, you just like you could maybe glance through that in a book, but when you hear somebody say that, it's like, whoa, it just, it hits you in a different way. And the same with the the story that you give at the beginning where you're talking about your journey into archaeology and you're talking about that conference. And I mean, it's just painful to listen to. So I, I love that. But I also love the way that it's very curated, I guess. Like it's really super well produced so that you know, like you could hand that to your everyday person, like that doesn't know anything about anthropology or any of these topics and they would get a lot out of it. And really like, you know, it, it's like a nice bite-sized little chunk where they can learn something really important, but in like a interesting and well-produced way. So it'd be really great for, you know, like classroom use, for example, where you could hand the students this little bite-sized topic and it would really bring something they're learning to life. The last thing I wanted to say on that is, you know, as part of the the Sapiens podcast, we actually created a companion series that really expand on those conversations. And it's through Cornell University's Radio Siams, and it's called The Sapiens Talk Back. And so it is produced again by the Archaeology Center's Coalition, but in collaboration with Cornell University's Radio Siams. And it's a it's a little bit of a deeper dive into the topics at hand. And it is produced with a group of graduate students who are a part of the um, Cornell University Siams. And it's their Archaeology and Material Studies Center. We just finished up the fifth episode with them. And I, I did a an episode with uh, Dr. Nicola Luck, and we just had a conversation about the fifth episode that we produced, and, and it's entitled More Than a Mountain. And so it was a really great conversation with graduate students, but we also provide additional resources on, on as part of both of these podcasts. And so I think that's one of the really great sort of extensions of this podcast is that we are providing learning materials. And so one of our goals as well with 
both the webinar and with the podcast was to make these stories accessible. And so, you know, when we think about archaeology, most of the time, you know, that is when we speak to one another, we can use these, you know, terms, this sort of jargon, and we understand one another. But when we pull that same language and and try to speak to our communities in that same sort of code and, and language, it completely is just, you know, it's like you're speaking a foreign language. And so one of the things with the, the webinar series and the podcast series and the resources that are offered is that they are all sort of tailored for mainstream consumption. And so, you know, it's a, a very sort of public way and an easy sort of delve into all of these new great developments in archaeology. And so as part of the, you know, my own work that I do here at Northern Arizona University, I actually have created lists and and sort of these bibliographies of different topical areas that I am consistently asked about. And so, you know, I have lists on indigenous archaeology, decolonizing methodology, indigenous futurisms. And and this is really a way for me to, you know, provide these lists to students to, to share with them in an attempt to, you know, really get them to move beyond what we consider the sort of canon of anthropology and archaeology and move into these sort of marginalized or other ways of knowing. And the the webinar and the podcast series are really great ways to sort of dip your toe into the water and then take a deep dive into, you know, all of this great work that's that's happening. And so if anybody is interested, you can definitely contact me and and if you would like to see a list or, you know, chat about any of the things that I've spoken about, I'm definitely open to that as well. Yeah. Okay. So I have, no, I'm going to ask only one question at a time because I always ask like 14 questions and then <laughs> they don't all get answered. But first of all, that's funny because that was the exact point that I was like when we were talking over each other, that was the exact point that I was going to bring up too was about radio Siams. Uh spelled with a C by the way. So C-I-A-M-S. The first time I looked it up, I was trying to do an S. It didn't work. But <laughs> so, okay. First of all, what, since obviously this audience does tend to be a little bit more academic, um, what would you say are like the seminal, you know, you wish everybody in the world read these, you know, couple sources or it doesn't have to be books. It could be whatever. But like if you, if you could direct people to only a few things, what would they be? I think for me, you know, one of the things that we have to recognize in, in the work that we're doing, and especially within anthropology and archaeology, is that there is a legacy of colonialism. And part of the work that we have to do as, as you know, practitioners, but also as, you know, educators is to unpack that legacy. And, and, and for me, part of that involves decolonizing methodologies. And there are several scholars, indigenous scholars, who have said that, decolonization is for everyone. And so by everyone, indigenous, non-indigenous, right? It's, it's all of our work together because this has impacted all of us. However, indigenization as a process is for indigenous people. And so there's a distinction there between indigenous archaeology, right? And indigenizing archaeology. And so I want to be very clear about that because there are non-indigenous peoples who are a 
a part of the work that we do as Indigenous archaeologists or within Indigenous archaeology. And so, you know, I really want to break that misunderstanding down that there are non-Indigenous peoples who are working within Indigenous archaeology. And so for me, that the, the seminal book that everyone should read as part of the first step to learning about how research impacts different groups, how, how research in, in specifically has impacted Indigenous communities would be Linda Tuhiwe Smith's 1999 book. And, and there are several iterations that have come out since, or editions. I believe there, the third one came out last year. Her book, Decolonizing Methodologies, Indigenous Peoples and in Research, in 1999 was just amazing for me. It, it provided me with the language to be able to articulate what I had learned and what I understood as an Indigenous person moving through anthropological and archaeological training and, and education. And so I would recommend that everybody read that book first. And so as part of the the, the classes that I teach, that is the first book that we delve into because it provides a foundation for understanding how research has impacted Indigenous peoples. And again, that for me is is essential if we are to do anything, if we're to make any changes, if we are to move together in a collaborative and, and very, you know, a very partnered sort of way. And so that would be my first recommendation. And, and, if you are interested in, in learning more about Indigenous research, I would also recommend Margaret Kovacs' book, um, Indigenous Research Methodologies, and as well as Sean Wilson's book, Research as Ceremony. And so those three books together provide a very sort of essential foundation for those who are interested in working with by and for indigenous communities. And so I think those are, are the seminal three there. But if you're interested in indigenous archeology, span very specifically, there are different readers that are available. And, and I, I do recommend that if you are a student that you start with the, the historical work starting in the 1990s, mid 1990s, and then moving into the 2000s, because a lot of that work was really cutting edge. It was the foundation of what we see now. And again, you, in order for us to move forward, you cannot forget your past. You cannot forget where you've come from. And so, you know, in honoring those indigenous archaeologists who've come before me and who have really been influential in, in the work that I do, their work was really just groundbreaking as far as introducing the fact that indigenous peoples have knowledge about the past and trying to overcome these very, again, low legacies of colonialism about indigenous peoples. And so those three books, I think, are a way to really overcome some of the stereotypes about research and in, with indigenous peoples. But it also gives you I guess, guidance as far as alternative ways of conducting research that honor Indigenous knowledges and life worlds. And so those would be the three. But I, I, again, I have a ton of lists and, and resources. So 
And I can talk about that all day. <laughs> yes. So if you want those resources, the all the sources that she has her, her students look at, definitely email her. Well, I know that I have a giant list still of questions that I could have asked you. So hopefully we can have you back on sometime. But I just wanted to say thank you again so much for, for coming on the podcast today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, of course. I had an amazing time and I really appreciate the questions. So thank you. Thanks for listening to the Heritage Voices podcast. You can find show notes at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com slash heritagevoices. Please subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or the Google Play Music Store. Also, please share with your friends or write us a review. Sharing and reviewing helps more people find the show and gets the perspectives of Heritage Voices' amazing guests out there into the world. Don't we just need more of that in anthropology and land management? If you have any more questions, comments, or show suggestions, please reach out to me at jessica at livingheritageanthropology.org If you'd like to volunteer to be on the show as a guest or even a co-host, reach out to me as well, Jessica at livingheritageanthropology.org You can also follow more of what I'm doing on Facebook at Living Heritage Anthropology and the nonprofit Living Heritage Research Council or on Twitter at Living Heritage A. As always, huge thank you to Lyle Balenqua and Jason Nez for their collaboration on our incredible logo. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks for listening. Please consider joining our growing core of members over at archpodnet.com slash members. If you liked what you heard, consider leaving a review wherever you're listening to this. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.